Welcome to Community Connections, brought to you by Synapsity, featuring conversations, stories, and interviews with Ottawa's leading changemakers. Enjoy this episode. On this episode of Community Connections, we feature an interview with Somerset Ward candidate Ariel Troster. We spoke about her vision of the ward and Ottawa. Enjoy. All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody, for uh, the Community Connection Synapsity podcast. As we all know, Ottawa's municipal election is coming up on October 24th, and we hope you all get out and vote. Um, it's an exciting election, as there are many wards without incumbent candidates. Somerset Ward uh, is one such uh, place, and that extends from Centertown to Little Italy. Uh, it is one of the densest urban wards in the city. And Catherine McKenney, uh, who was previous councillor, is now running for mayor, which has opened up a lot of opportunities for new candidates to emerge. One such candidate is Ariel Troster, a Somerset Ward residence for the last 12 years. She is an advocate and professional communicator with a track record of taking action and getting results. She worked in the nonprofit and labor sectors for more than 20 years, including the last five at the Canadian Federation of Municipalities. So welcome, Ariel. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start off with a little bit of an introduction. Tell us a bit about yourself and what qualifies you to be a counselor. Sure. So I have lived in Ottawa since 2004. I initially moved here for what was supposed to be a four-month contract, and I never left. Um, I have always been involved in activism and advocacy in, in, in some capacity. I started my time in Ottawa working with Maude Barlow at the Council of Canadians. After that, I worked in the labor movement for many years. I've been uh, involved in the LGBTQ community. I sat on boards of directors of a bunch of uh, different organizations. And for the last uh, five, six years, I've been involved with a group called Rainbow Haven. We sponsor and support LGBTQ refugees uh, and asylum seekers and newcomers here in Ottawa. And that's been a really amazing and eye-opening experience. And then yes, in my professional life for the last five years, I've been at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, which is the main um, advocacy organization for cities and communities across Canada. So I was involved with working on policy files um, on affordable housing, transportation, climate change, sustainable building, um, all sorts of issues that impact us here in Ottawa. Yeah, absolutely. Great resume and uh, some fabulous work that you've done over there. So so congratulations. So as we know, uh, we will have a new mayor after this election on the 24th. What would you like to see this mayor prioritize across the city? And how do you feel you'll be able to work with the successful candidate? Yeah, well, the first thing I'd really like to see is for uh, us to develop a whole of city holistic approach when it comes to governing the city, because all of us are elected to represent different wards, but we have entire systems that cut across the whole city, public transit affordable housing, social services. So I definitely want to see a mayor who's able to build some bridges and who makes sure that the urban wards are no longer frozen out of major decision making uh, committees at council so that we can work together to help revive our downtown and to ensure that those of us in the urban core don't feel that we're being left behind. The two main issues citywide that I hear about every single day at the door 
uh, lack of affordable housing. In my neighborhood, it's very often lack of affordable rental housing. Uh, Somerset Ward has the highest rate of poverty in the city. We have a lot of people who rent in my neighborhood. So you do hear often from certain candidates about how people can't afford to become homeowners, and that's absolutely true. But there's lots of people who, who can't afford to keep a roof over their head at all. So that's the number one issue in my ward, and it's a huge issue across the city. And the other uh, piece is the total lack of reliability of our transit system. We have some of the highest public transit fares in North America. And right now we have a system where the bus may come, it may not come <laughs> for a lot of people. And certainly in the, in the more suburban wards, it, it doesn't respect people's time and it's not worth their money to take the bus. And if we want public transit to be a real option for people, if we're really committed to climate uh, solutions in our city, uh, to climate action, we need to invest in public transit and to fix it so it actually works for people. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think we've all been there kind of waiting for the bus, looking at our phone, thinking it's coming, wondering if it kind of already went. So uh, maybe no standing on a sidewalk in the freezing cold wind and somehow there's no bus shelter there. There's no place to sit down. I mean, it's just it's an accessibility issue. It's an urban mobility issue. It's an equity issue and it's an environmental issue. Transit cuts across our entire city. So, and unfortunately what's happening now is the people who are left taking it are the ones who cannot afford to own a car or do not drive for some reason. And so our, you know, our out of control transit fares, they become an extra tax on the poorest people in our neighborhood. So we, we can't just have the transit rates climbing as the system continues to be unreliable. It's just, it's unfair and it's not befitting of our city. Absolutely. And so you touched on it in your first point there. We know that housing is a hot button issue, especially in your ward. Access to affordable housing is dwindling and many young people have had to shelve the dream of owning their own home. How would you help tackle the housing crisis that is in front of us? Sure. So uh, what a lot of people don't know is one of the first goals we need to do before we build more affordable housing, which I'll talk about in a second, which is very important, is that we need to stop the loss of affordable rentals in our city. Um, according to Steve Pomeroy at Carleton University, he's done extensive research into this, we lose seven affordable rental homes for everyone that we build in the city. A lot of times this is due to demolitions or renovictions. So, you know, when a tenant moves out, a landlord might renovate and then jack the rent up by 5%. That gets rid of an affordable rental. It's happening all across the city. So one of the things that I'm proposing to stop the loss of affordable housing is to set up something called a city housing acquisition fund. So when some of these older rental buildings or rooming houses come on the market, um, the city can buy them up and sell them to nonprofits like uh, CCOC housing here in Ottawa. There's also options by town. We have a number of them uh, so that they can, you know, even if they're charging market market rent in those buildings because they're nonprofits, they're not guided by the profit motive. It would sort of maintain a level of moderately affordable rental housing in the city, which we're losing so quickly. The other thing that we need to do is um, extend inclusionary zoning across the entire city. Now, this may not make a huge difference in terms of affordability, but it'll stop urban sprawl and it'll also provide more homes for people, which is really important. But we need to do this not just downtown, not just clustered beside transit stations, but everywhere. We have a lot of land in Ottawa. We have a ton of sprawl. There is room for more housing. We should, we, I personally think we should abolish R1 zoning. You know, and here's the reality. If you already have a single family home, no one's gonna take it away from you. But we just need to make room for more neighbors in our city. It's really, really important. Um, some of the other things we need to do is we need to advocate with the province and uh, with the federal government to, to, to fund deeply affordable and social housing 
much more than they're doing now. And again, I have that experience from my time working at FCM, advocating up the chain to other levels of government. But the kind of affordable housing we're talking about there is for somebody who lives on um, Ontario Works or ODSP disability benefits. You know, their their entire uh, monthly budget is something like seven or eight hundred dollars. Uh, there's people in my neighborhood who are living in absolutely horrendous rooming houses and paying six to seven hundred dollars a month for a room. Sometimes they're sharing a bathroom with five, ten, you know, twelve other people. It's really quite inhumane. So um, we definitely need more deeply affordable housing, and that is going to require funding, and it is going to require advocacy on behalf of council. And then I also think there's lots of interesting things we can do as a city. Um, the city of Victoria is one example for nonprofit uh, building projects that fit within certain parameters. Um, if they're if they're providing affordable housing and they're done by nonprofits, they can bypass um, planning committee and some of the zoning uh, requirements. So that would be a really great way to accelerate um, building more nonprofit housing in the city. And then there's also ways that we can use community benefit agreements. So if a developer comes into a neighborhood and says, I want to add an extra 10 floors to this building and it goes against height regulations in our neighborhood, um, there's a chance for the city to bargain with that developer to say, okay, maybe, but we want you to have a percentage of those units to be affordable, or we want you to have a percentage of those units to be bigger than two bedrooms for families that live downtown, or we want you to provide a park that the city, you know, the people in the city can use nearby. And so I think what it comes down to is supporting, we definitely need to be, build more housing, but we're not going to magically make housing affordable just by building more. We need to ensure that those protections are in place for people, and we need to save what we already have. Yeah, no, those are some great points and some very important initiatives that you've outlined there. So absolutely. Um, let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk about climate. Uh, we, we've all heard about the climate master plan and the energy evolution um, as potentially we move towards a greener Ottawa. Do you support these programs and what other climate projects do you want to see the city take action on? Yeah, well, absolutely. I put it in my platform that we need to properly fund all of the energy evolution items um, to move uh, to a city that's more sustainable. Uh, a few things. First of all, I mean, Somerset Ward uh, has the lowest number of trees in the entire city. We only have 22% tree coverage. They say that you need 30 to 40%, ideally 40, to help mitigate climate change. So we need to re-green the downtown and we need to preserve the green space that we have um, and also stop urban sprawl. I support Catherine McKenney's proposal to turn what remains of the green belt into an urban park so that it remains permanent green space. It's really, really important. Um, and, you know, the city of Montreal is doing some really interesting things like it can take decades for a tree to grow into a mature tree that has enough shade to help a neighborhood. But they're doing things like um, turning traffic calming bollards into planters, like like offering more greenery everywhere, investing in more green roofs, you know, that that all helps cool climate. Um, and there's a lot of initiatives that are happening at the municipal level that can be scaled up. We need to retrofit city buildings and other um, government owned properties. Um, and also, I think the number one thing that cities can do for climate is get cars off the road, invest in active transportation, um, make public transit fast, reliable and affordable. <laughs> so that even if you're a family like mine, we own one car, but we own one car, we don't own two, we own one and I use it almost not at all when I'm in the neighborhood. I've been running this entire election campaign for my bicycle because it's entirely possible. So there's a lot of um, people who want to be either car free or car light. And, you know, it's not saying that you might not use a vehicle to go grocery shopping occasionally or to take your kid to hockey lessons or, or, or to certain things. But the point is, 
the more options we have for people, the less time we'll spend in our cars, the less cars that there are on the road. Yeah, absolutely. I biked in today and uh, no, great. Uh, kudos to you for running the entire campaign. You definitely need some some bike panniers to probably put all your, oh, your materials yeah. in. I got major panniers. I got myself the uh, double kickstand so my bike doesn't knock over. I mean, there's been one or two days when it's been like pouring rain that I brought the car to somewhere to canvas. But the thing is, you know, it, it it's really the easiest for me of any of the wards. Our, our entire ward is six kilometers square. I live a five minute bike ride from the campaign office. City Hall is a 10 minute bike ride from my house so if I can't do it <laughs> that would be a pretty sad state of things um, but we also need you know to make it more inviting for people who walk in our neighborhood tons of seniors don't bike but the ones who live downtown they want to walk to amenities so part of it too is helping to sponsor um, 15 minute neighborhoods to to invest in housing so that there's a customer base for the corner grocery store and for the convenience store and for the things that people want within walking distance and also to prioritize our snow clearing and our infrastructure to make sure that our sidewalks are safe for people to walk on and that they're sufficiently separated and protected from traffic and also from bicycles so yeah, you know we need no. to just make space for people on our streets it's it's a it, it has so many ancillary benefits it's super important yeah, we don't want to be just a driving city, so no great points. Let's dive in a little bit deeper on the transportation topic. How would you improve transit options in your ward, and how would you encourage sustainable transportation? We've heard talk about maybe like a no-car zone or EV only. Is that something you would support? And uh, yeah, a few other words on, on how you would uh, encourage sustainable transportation. Yeah, well, first of all, I think we need to invest more in dedicated bus lanes and in bus routes that get people where they need to go within the neighborhood and across neighborhoods and not necessarily just during the nine to five. We know that the traditional commuter rush has changed dramatically during the pandemic, and a lot of people are going to continue to work from home, possibly permanently, or they might be only coming into the office one or two days a week. And so we need our commuter patterns are changing and people are wanting to do things at different times of the day, we need to make sure that you're not, you don't have to wait for an hour for a bus and that it isn't cheaper just to call a cab or drive your car. So that's the first thing. Um, what we have in Centertown is we have a few, and in Somerset Ward, we have a few decent bike lanes. What we don't have is a functional active transportation grid. So I can go for a lovely bucolic ride on the canal. And then when I want to get off the canal to go into the Byron Market, for example, I have to cross four lanes of Sussex. It's completely terrifying. I have to cross Rito. There's no, there's no bike lane. So you go from like, this is really lovely to this is completely terrifying. Um, I met a family in the neighborhood that recently bought a car so they could have a bike rack on it so they could drive with their kids and their bicycles to the canal because they didn't feel safe cycling there from their home, which is less than a kilometer away. That's unaccessible. So we need safe cycling infrastructure um, for people to say, oh, we're a city that has winter. Well, we don't have winter 12 months a year. Most people that I know, I'm not a winter cyclist, but I cycle nine months a year. And if the infrastructure was there and if it was properly cleared and maintained, you could probably tempt me pretty quickly to get on my bike in the winter. Um, so I think it's build the infrastructure, people will come. And again, it's not mandatory, it's just an option for people and that's gonna help environmentally. Um, and you know, I've seen other examples too of other places where they have um, uh, rebates or financing or tax incentives for people who buy electric bike, bicycles or cargo bikes, which is increasingly becoming um, uh, a much more available way for people to uh, get their groceries and do those errands that would be hard on a typical bicycle or carry their kids to and from school. But you know, it's really funny. It's easy to get financing to buy a car. It's hard to get financing to buy a $5,000 electric bike, right? So you, you might own a $30,000 vehicle, vehicle and then bulk at the cost of a $5,000 
you know, electric cargo bike, because not a lot of people have that kind of money up front. So I think if we can find ways to make it easier for people to purchase um, electric bicycles, I, I think we're going to see people using them all over the place. They're extremely popular in Europe. So, but what it comes down to is um, we need to build the infrastructure to make these things appealing to people. I know that I only really became an urban cyclist about 10 years ago when some of the bigger bike lanes like the Laurier bike lane came in, when it, when it just became a little bit more feasible to cut across the city um, on safe infrastructure. And now we need to expand it so you can actually do your whole route without, you know, my office is sitting right here on Somerset Street. I have to cycle on Somerset to get to the campaign office. It's constantly terrifying. I do it, but I have some confidence after cycling you know, for 10 or 15 years in the city, but for a new cyclist, for somebody who's hesitant, um, it's really important that we all have a safe place to be on the road. Yeah, no, great points. I've often noticed, like, even just with the different bike paths, maybe some more signage, uh, easier connections, right? Because there's so many different paths, but sometimes there's, like you mentioned, there's maybe not an easy route to get between, or it's not well signed. Yeah, but, or you uh, think you're on what's, what is a safe path, but then to get to your final destination, you have to do something quite terrifying. And it's really, really unfair. Um, and those, those choke points, those kind of, um, Sometimes someone someone once referred to a slip lane as like a murder lane. Like they're terrifying. If suddenly you're on your bike path and then you're just dumped into traffic. And I cycle in the city with my 10-year-old daughter. So I know that when suddenly she goes, oh my God, mama, I'm scared. Something's wrong. It means that the city should be protecting her and anyone else who's biking. Absolutely. Great point. So we know that transportation, climate, housing, all of these topics come with a large financial cost. Uh, what is your philosophy around taxes and spending? How should our city's budget work? Yeah, so that's a really good question. The first thing that I want to say is to put things into perspective. Canada's cities, Canada's municipal governments manage 60% of the infrastructure across Canada and we get 10 cents on every tax dollar. So the first thing I'll say is that property taxes are a regressive tax. They're not a great way to fund things, but it is what we have. Um, we do have some sources of funding, infrastructure funding and transit funding that comes directly from the feds into cities. I'd love to see more funds like that, especially for bigger cities like ours. But the reality is property taxes is what we have. Um, I. I would be really wary of any candidate who straight off the bat makes a guarantee to freeze property taxes or to only have them at a very specific level because I think we need to take a holistic look at the budget. But before we consider what the property tax rate might be, we also need to take a look at huge categories where we're absolutely overspending. Uh, the number one I would put in terms of funding sustainable initiatives is road expansion and urban sprawl. So uh, we spend, we, we manage over 6,000 kilometers of roads in the city of Ottawa. This, the sprawl is out of control. Uh, simply speaking, I don't think we should expand any more roads. We should fix the ones that we already have. I think that's incredibly important. And I think we need to stop urban sprawl, like Point Final. It's, our, our, you know, it, it's unsustainable. It's pushing the city to places where there isn't already infrastructure. Right now, it costs um, the average taxpayer within the Greenbelt $465 a year to service um, suburbs that are way beyond. Uh, we have a giant amalgamated city and at some point we have to hold the line on sprawl. The other place where I think we need to take a serious look at the budget is the police budget. The police budget has tripled in the last 20 years. It's outpaced both inflation and the cost of living. It's over $385 million, which is three times, for example, of what we spend on public health in our city. And so freezing the police budget would be a really good start. And then also I think we need to look at some of the secretive public-private partnerships 
um, that the city has signed on the LRT, for example, this 30-year maintenance contract that we're in that is enormously expensive. Um, you know, uh, the deals that have been signed, for example, with the Lansdowne development, I think we need to hold the line and we need to make sure that um, whenever possible that we're keeping services in-house because they're generally uh, more accountable and affordable that way. And if we do sign public-private partnerships, we need better cost control and better transparency. So those would be the three main areas that I would look at right away. But I also, the other thing I wanna say is we need just to grow up and say, do we wanna be a city with vision? Do we wanna be a city where the bus comes when you expect it to on a hot day when the pool is actually running and you know it isn't drained at 5 p.m.? Do you wanna show up the library and have it be open or do you wanna have it be closed on Sundays? At the end of the day, we can have a city that works or one that doesn't. And I think people really want a city that works and that requires investment and it doesn't cost nothing. Um, so I just think low or no tax guarantees can be very deceiving and they can also often lead to cost overruns in other areas. So. Do I want to see property taxes jacked up? No, absolutely not. I think they should probably be somewhere close to what the rate of inflation is, which tends to be about 3% per year. But again, I would be very wary of anyone who's prepared to make that decision before actually sitting down at the budget table and taking a look at the big areas where we're probably overspending as a city already. Yeah, no, great points. I often say, you know, Ottawa, we're a big city that thinks it's a small city, but I think we're slowly starting to move out of that and, and realize, hey, we're a big city and we can be a world-class city. Right? Absolutely. So. We deserve nice things. We deserve benches and seating areas that are actually enjoyable to sit in. We, we deserve street festivals. We deserve a bus that comes on time. I mean, all of these things are so basic and they're not happening right now. And I think we can dream even bigger than that but we can't do those things if we starve our city of the resources that it needs. Yeah, good point. So so let's change gears a little bit. We know that you're running for probably one of the most diverse wards in the city. Why is diversity important to you? How do you plan to represent a diverse Ottawa, especially uh, communities that you're a part of yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a proud queer woman. I'm also Jewish. I uh, have lived downtown. Uh, here in Centertown for the last 12 years. Uh, my wife and I purposely decided to raise our child downtown. We wanted her to be in an economically diverse neighborhood. Uh, I love my street. It's very uh, symbol uh, symbolic of, of many other Centertown streets. We have a combination of people own their homes. We have rental housing. We have community housing. We have subsidized housing. You wouldn't know from the outside. All of the neighbors hang out together, literally play hockey on the streets, sit out, have a drink together. And that's the kind of community that we love. We don't want to see people pushed out of our neighborhood. We don't want my neighbor, Linda, who's rented her house for 40 years. She was almost evicted during the pandemic. We don't want Linda to leave. We love Linda. I think it's incredibly, incredibly important to protect our neighborhoods. So even if we're seeing further development and more housing being built, we don't want to see people from lower income levels pushed out of our neighborhood. As I said earlier, Somerset Ward, we have the highest rate of poverty in the city. We also have the highest number of rooming houses. And say what you will about rooming houses, they're some of the only affordable housing left and they're one stop before homelessness for people on a fixed income. And if we see those kinds of buildings taken down, we're gonna see even more of a homelessness crisis in our city and in our community. Um, I also, you know, my daughter goes to a school nearby. We walk there. They have a program that integrates children with disabilities. It's a multi-ethnic school. Um, I don't think anybody who chooses to leave downtown, live downtown wants it to be homogenous. We want it. <laughs> Diversity uh, gives us the pulse of the city. It gives us a more equitable city. And so I am deeply committed to ensuring that we have a city where everyone can afford to live, where we have services to help people, where our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness or struggling with addiction can get the help they need to 
and be integrated into the fabric of our community. And the thing that's been so wonderful is I've knocked on doors of the most opulent homes, brand new fancy condos, and also some of the most decrepit, horrifying rooming houses that you can possibly imagine in just terrible, terrible conditions. And the need to um, take care of vulnerable or people who are made vulnerable uh, in our community has come up constantly. Even people who are quite wealthy are saying, you know, my son doesn't know where he's going to live because he can't afford rent. Or I think it's completely inhumane that there's a woman sleeping on a bench outside the bank on the corner of the street. So the number one issue that people want to talk about is tackling affordable housing and homelessness. And that makes me uh, tremendously proud to be part of this neighborhood and even more committed to making sure that we ensure that no one is left behind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that's that's the, one of my favorite things about kind of being downtown and being around, you know, a diverse range of folks and hearing different languages and different points of view. And, it's and so I mean, like, to... you know, you got to love the neighborhood characters. Like I met this amazing couple, this amazing gay couple uh, that have lived in their apartment since 1975. They've been together for 50 years. They were apparently just infamous sun tanning in Minto Park in the summer and they have dog treats for all the neighborhood dogs and like these are the wonderful people in our neighborhood. Center Town would not be the same without this couple and with so many others like them and so I don't want to see them pushed out of their home. <laughs> I don't want to see my neighbor Linda pushed out of her home. I mean it's just it's what makes our neighborhood wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And very important issues. Um, let's talk a little bit about community safety. When it comes to improving community safety, what issues come to mind as most urgent to address? Yeah, so I actually re, uh, just wrote an article for the Ottawa Citizen about our need to rethink community safety in Ottawa. Uh, for those of us who lived through the convoy occupation for those three terrible weeks in January and February, we know what it feels like to be abandoned. And three weeks of inaction, um, extremism on our street, harassment, it took three weeks and they had to bring in the army, or sorry, they had to bring the RCMP and police forces from across the country to move the convoy that had become ensconced in our neighborhood. And so we definitely need stronger police oversight uh, but I also think we need to talk about shifting resources into the community and away from policing. So as I mentioned, we have an absolutely ballooning police budget that has moved way beyond the cost of inflation and cost of living. Uh, and we have severely underfunded social services in our neighborhood. So, you know, if the police budget is $385.6 million, uh, 100 health and social service uh, organizations in Ottawa share $25 million. And in my neighborhood, a lot of the security concerns are related to uh, conflicts that are connected to homelessness, mental health issues, and addiction. And the reality is uh, the social services that are supposed to help people run on extremely tight margins, and they're not able to do everything that they want to do. Um, and the pandemic has only made these challenges worse. So I take a lot of inspiration from the city of Denver, Colorado, that piloted a non-police crisis intervention team that deals specifically with nonviolent offenses related to mental health and addiction and homelessness. And it has been so successful. They've um, answered something like 3000 calls. They've never once had to call for police backup and the rate of minor crime has gone down by 34%. So I would like to see us pilot something of this nature in Somerset Ward, possibly also in Brito Vanier, the two uh, downtown parts of the city that really are at the most painful when it comes to these issues. Uh, you know, what I say and what my neighbors tend to say is we need someone else to call. And, you know, very often you end up calling the police because there's there's no one else to call when somebody's in crisis. And I think we need to start thinking about how we can promote community um, 
community safety in our neighborhood beyond the policing model and to allow the police to do the work that is really well suited to them and to let mental health uh, professionals and social workers and harm reduction workers um, assist the people in my neighborhood who are struggling. Yeah, no, those are some important initiatives and, and definitely agree that, uh, you know, supporting some of those uh, uh, systems and, and, and supports would, would definitely uh, go a long way in, in Ottawa and in your ward, definitely. Um, let's pull out a little bit and, and talk about Ottawa as a whole. Uh, we know that the population is expected to grow by another half million over the next two decades. Pretty wild to think. Um, what is your long-term vision of Ottawa's future? Well, we need more housing. We need people to live. That's the number one thing. So we definitely need to scale up housing and not just any housing, affordable housing too. Um, putting, if we're going to add that many more people to our city, we can't add that many cars or two cars per household to our city. We, we need to deeply invest in transit to make sure that we're um, a sustainable place to get around and that we're not um, you know, contributing to us becoming even more of a heat island. And I also think you know, I love the movement that started in cities like Paris and in Montreal to become a city that's really focused on people, people focused streets, human scale infrastructure, um, you know, creative interventions that are designed to make our city fun and exciting, and also a focus on livability and 15 minute walkable neighborhoods. That's what people want. They want a series of 15 minute walkable neighborhoods. People who live in Stittsville are seeing this, people who live in Canada. You know, um, Lane Johnson, who's running for, um, you might know Lane, she used to work at Synapsity, um, who's running in College Ward, talks about how she made the decision to run for council when one day she was with her baby and her toddler and thought, ah, I want to go buy a bag of milk. And then realized that there was nowhere that she could walk to buy a bag of milk and that the sidewalks weren't even plowed and that in some areas she didn't even have sidewalks and that she was going to have to put them all in the car just to go two blocks away to get some milk. And so, um, I think a lot of people are having these kinds of conversations. The car-centered city is a thing of the past and it's something we need to move beyond. Um, if we're gonna add so many more people to the city, we, we can't be stuck in traffic forever. Look, my family lives in the greater Toronto area. It's the, it takes them 90 minutes to get anywhere in a city. It's so much wasted time and it's so terrible for our environment. So 90 minutes, that's not bad. You sometimes it might be two, three hours, yeah. right? Depending on what time of day, yeah. right? But anyway. no, I think you touched on it. One of the reasons why I love Ottawa is the livability. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, definitely if we can preserve that and, and boost that, I think that that's something that's very important, right? And, and people who do live here appreciate that versus some of the other bigger cities. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for joining us. No um, are there any last words that you'd like to leave uh, citizens of Ottawa or for your ward? You know, I just, I just really want people in our city to dream bigger. I think, I think I'm really tired of hearing we can't do this and we can't do that. And, you know, we're not Toronto or we're not Montreal. No, we're Ottawa. We're a fantastic city. We deserve nice things. We deserve people-centered infrastructure. We deserve responsible, open, and ethical city government. I think there's a real movement for change happening in the city. I encourage people to vote, to go volunteer. We have three weeks less. If there's candidates that you support, um, offer to knock on doors. That's another th one thing we need is people power to help knock on doors and talk to neighbors. And, you know, I just really believe that we build a better city when we take care of everyone and that we leave no one behind. So I hope I hope people keep that in mind when they go to the polls. Yeah, no, great thoughts. Well, well, thanks again for joining us, Ariel, and uh, best of luck with your campaign. We'll be watching with keen interest, as we know it's a very important ward, and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Nick. Have a great day.
Thank you for watching Community Connections brought to you by Synapse. Be sure to follow us on social media and subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content like this. Until next time, stay connected.